Well, good morning. Should I yell it? Good morning. You know, I have a voice and all back today, so that's good. All right, just so everyone knows where we're going from here, uh, obviously I will be on today because I have a voice back, yay. Um, Dr. Yeagley will be uh, next Sunday. I just have responsibilities on campus in the morning uh, that are really important. And then I will return after that for at least two or three more that will run a little bit into January before he actually takes over uh, with the Leviticus series. So that's where we're headed, and that's the opportunities the Lord has provided for us. So let's pray. We'll be in 2 Kings 23, 2 Kings 23, getting near the end of that book. Um, Let's commit our time to the Lord and ask for his help. Father, as the king's lives demonstrate to us over and over again, we are nothing without you. And the greatest intentions and the sincerest and noblest motivations of humanity, apart from your strength and the supply of your spirit, go nowhere. And yet with you, we can accomplish great things, Things that don't necessarily reach outside of a very small sphere of influence, and yet that sphere of influence is always important, even if it's just our families. That we can continue serving you and being faithful to you as you've called us to be. Thankful that your word is always urging us towards greater purity. And in, in that regard and toward that end, we pray for your supply today so that we will address your word faithfully and effectively and continue to apply it to our lives. We pray this for Jesus' sake, and we're thankful that he is with us and guiding us by his power. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This time of year can get a little overwhelming, can it? There's so much going on. We roll off the, the school year, and then you get to start Christmas shopping. So like at this point, and I was... Uh, even talking to my wife, just got back from the middle school uh, trip to the Ark and the Creation Museum on late Friday afternoon. And I'm like, ah, you know, we don't have any Christmas presents. She goes, you don't buy the Christmas presents anyway. I do. (laughs) Okay. Well, I don't have any Christmas presents for you yet. You know, I haven't had time to go shopping. And so you you feel a little bit, you know, tightening in the throat, a little nervous this time of year. Life can get overwhelming. Jobs are overwhelming. The busyness and scheduling of the holiday season are overwhelming. Family and financial pressures can be overwhelming. And to top it off, we are fighting against sin. It just never seems to go away, does it? Uh, We get older, and sometimes I complain to the Lord. I'm, I'm like, aren't I supposed to be getting wiser as I get older? You know, isn't this supposed to be getting better and easier? It doesn't seem to be making progress in that regard. Well, the passage that's in front of us today just gives us one more part of the process of maturity that God wants us all to go through. Yes, it can be daunting, but we have to remember that God is not calling us to do this on our own. He's not asking for people to just work harder and try harder to be pure in heart but to walk with him and through his spirit be his people. So 2 Kings chapter 23, let's begin in verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, 
and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and all around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. It's a testimony of the Lord and doesn't start this chapter in a really... uh, I don't know, very comfortable testimony for a Christmas season, and yet we find that God is redeeming us from exactly the kinds of impurities of heart that Judah needed to purge out. When we moved to our current home, we found that the previous owners had left quite a few things over the years. They'd accumulated things. They'd been on the land for over 50 years and had built not only the house that they lived in, where we live now, but had a a machine shop where they worked on big, huge construction vehicles and asphalt. The guy owned an asphalt company. Uh, We turned that into a house for my parents. And then they had pole barns in the back and just just stuff. And after we bought the house and started, you know, trying to just clean everything and paint everything so it was the way we wanted when we moved in, I opened up underneath the house, you know, in the crawl space, and there's just debris everywhere. You know, there are, there are boxes and boxes of canning jars and uh, scrap metal and wood and all sorts of things. We went out to the edge of the woods and there's barbed wire wrapped around trees and strung through the woods and wrapped around trees because it, they, they had at one point, many years before, raised pigs in the woods and uh, used the barbed wire to keep the pigs in. And we could actually find outlines of pig pens with stone at the base so the pigs couldn't root underneath the lowest strand of barbed wire. And for a while, we attempted to put this stuff in the, the garbage. We thought, okay, you know, every, every time the garbage goes out, we'll make sure it's packed to the top. And, and we just, there was way too much stuff. And some of it was way too big and way too heavy for us to put in the garbage. So finally, I talked with Christine and said, let's rent a roll-off dumpster, the biggest size they've got. We filled it. Right now, I'm threatening to do the same thing again because there was still, even after we filled it to maximum capacity, uh, we still have stuff here 10 years later from the original owners that we would love to get rid of. There's only one good solution when you run into piles of trash. Get rid of them, okay? Uh, I'm not preaching against hoarding, but uh, I have watched a a show a couple of times on hoarders and or there was once a crime, like a true life crime thing, and they had, you know, they're going with police officers, and they went into a, a mobile home that the spaces were one foot wide. That was the total space you could weave your way through just barely working and everything else was garbage just packed to the ceilings and they actually look like there's only one thing to do in a situation like that get a roll off dumpster and throw it all away or or torch the whole thing (laughs) but garbage fills life and the same thing is true for us as believers morally speaking it's true of the whole world at large because we're born sinners 
but stuff just accumulates as well in life if we're not intentional about eradicating it. And a passage like the one that we find today tells us that faith finds God supremely valuable. When we believe in Him, when we have our eyes focused on Him, we find Him of such significant value in our lives that we're willing to purge out impurity from life. And there's never a stage at which this ends. There's never an age at which this ends. We continue to look at our lives, to examine them in light of God's word and over against the world and say, what of the world am I just being tainted with? Through a process of slow accumulation and or appealing to my flesh. We begin by getting rid of the immediate evil. Immediate here means not only taking action right away, that's what we normally think of. We normally think of immediate in terms of a a time, but immediate can also mean without mediation or that which is right next to us. A lot of the times we're daunted at the cleanup process, and maybe you've faced the same thing where you go, okay, today's the day we're really going to deep clean the house, and you go, where do we start? And and so you spend all this time trying to figure out where to start, and you end up ending the day without actually getting around to the cleaning because you're planning the the big start. Uh, Sometimes in cases like that, it's best just to start where you are. I'm like, literally, I find myself right here, and I try to train my kids that way. I said, when you start the cleanup process, literally stand up from the sofa and look around. Within your arm's reach, there is probably a bowl or a plate that you brought in with a snack and you sat there on the little end table and then you deposited it there and left it there to accumulate over a period of a couple of days. So stand up, take whatever you find and move to the next room and put it where it ought to go and then look around and find something there and move it to its proper place. It's one of the best ways, actually, to clean something. So immediate here is not just taking action right away, but taking action with what is nearby. That is, when the Lord provokes our hearts that we need to be purifying our lives, the goal is not, I don't know, just to sit down and spend time making a list of, you know, 200 items of sin that we need to eradicate. But what does the Lord bring to mind? What is most obvious What is most evident? What from your recent devotions or message that you have heard or provocation of the Spirit is right on the forefront of your mind that needs removal? Don't be paralyzed by this, as it were, the cleaning process, but remove obvious evil activities and objects. Verses 4 through 6 show us this. Notice what Josiah began. The temple is nearby the king's house. Start with the temple. It's also the most important place. But he removed vessels for Baal, Asherah, the host of heaven. The passage tells us he burned them all. Why is that a good idea? You can't bring them back. If you burn stuff, it's pretty much gone, at least if it's made out of a you know, carbon-based thing. Uh, we always enjoy burn day down by the creek. It's always a hard day. We accumulate stuff from the whole property, 10 acres worth of wood falling and things like that. And you haul it down to the creek and you deposit. We build up a pile usually that's about six feet high, usually about six feet wide and 30 to 40 feet long. And then we lattice 
a, a, a burn pile and keep piling the debris into the center of that pile as these you know, big logs hold it all and contain it all. But it's an incredibly satisfying day. You know why? Because this intensity of this heat is enough that, yeah, I have completely burned off my eyebrows twice. You know, you, you get close with an arm load and you're tossing it on. The wind shifts and blows the superheated air right into your face. You don't even get touched by the flames, but the superheated air, instantly gone. And the little crispy critters are left behind here until they regrow. But that kind of heat does what to this massive pile of wood? It's ash. It's a beautiful thing. Combustion. You know, little scientific equations. You get carbon dioxide and a little tiny bit of ash left from all of this. We've been accumulating the ash and charcoal for now more than a decade on the property. And it still only measures a pile about three feet high and six feet long. The rest of it's gone. Well, that's what the Lord is asking us to do with things that are in our lives. Take whatever is nearby and remove it if it is wicked. In addition to burning it, some of the stuff was made out of stone. You can't burn the stone. So what did he do with the stone? Verse 6, he beat it to powder. Uh, We once had a sidewalk that was the sidewalk to nowhere. Well, originally it went to a back deck. But the back deck was useless because it was in the the heat of the summer sun. And we literally never went out there. And it was starting to rot and decay. So we tore the whole deck down, which meant we had this gorgeous sidewalk off in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) So Daniel and I uh, said, we're not going to pay somebody to come in and break it up. We're going to break it up. Sledgehammers. You know how hard it is to sledgehammer an entire sidewalk of about 50 feet long and, you know, three to four inches thick and three feet wide? We were sledgehammering for weeks, but we ground most of it to powder. Uh, so much of it, you'd hit it just right and it just explodes. And this big cloud of dust rises and very satisfying. But there's nothing you can do with it. Well, there is. We used it for drainage afterward. You just pile it in holes and water can drain into the holes. But ground it to powder so that it would be worthless uh, uh, t- to use, obviously, in, in a situation of a sidewalk, and here in their case, as idolatry. So planning is excellent, but sometimes our plans die the death of a thousand steps of planning. We can plan, overplan our planning um, in my case, it looks like this. I need to study a passage and write a Sunday school lesson. Well, I can't do that without a clear desk, so I'll clean up the desk. Now, you, you can't clean up a desk until you clean out the drawers in the desk so that you have room to take the stuff that's on the top of the desk and put it in the drawers. So first, I'll take everything out of the drawers and clean them so that I can clean the desktop so that then I can write the Sunday school lesson. Uh, there, there are weeks like that where... Just in, in the nature of a week, you just don't want to sit down and study anymore. So what do you do? You put all the unnecessary things out of your mind and you study anyway with a messy desk. You have to get about the work of cleaning life by choosing deliberate and immediate steps that God allows us to choose. Our property was originally impassable 12 years ago as well when we moved in, so I used the story of the burning. Uh, 
originally when we moved in, this is not a picture of it. This looks very open and clear by comparison. But sometime, probably within the 10 years before we moved in, a downburst had hit the area, and a microburst blasts air straight at the ground from a, from a cloud, usually a heavy thunderstorm, and it hits the ground and, and explodes outward when it hits the ground at such velocity it can level trees, and that's what had happened. We had 90-foot-tall pine trees stacked up, sometimes in some places as many as six deep on top of each other, latticed like uh, Tinker Toys or Lincoln Logs. And my son loved it. He was, I think, six when we moved in. And he just snaked his way in and among the logs and thought that they were great. And my dad and I were less amused. And we're like, no, we want to use this woods, trails, and things like that. So we had to start. But we started down near where we were going to burn everything and just said, we're going to move up the hill and drag everything out and burn it. And then move a little further in, drag it out. You can't start at the stuff on the inside. You start at the stuff that's nearest And that's exactly what Josiah did with cleaning the temple. Second, he removed obvious influences, verses 5 and 7. The passage tells us he deposed the priests that were sacrificing at alternative worship sites. If he leaves the priests in place, priests that have devoted their lives to Baal, then you might smash their idols and they're going to turn around and rebuild the idols, or at least encourage the people to stage some kind of revolt against the king and rebuild the idols. So he removed the evil influences. Passage continues, he smashed the houses of the religious prostitutes. Yeah, they actually did that in the ancient world, where they wedded together in the crassness and crudity of the wicked human mind, the fertility by which children were an asset to the family because they were your workforce. So you tied that together with a worship of your deities, and it was even better if you had prostitutes because then you could go worship and wed together your worship of your deity with immorality. And Josiah eradicated it all. All the evil influences that he could reach and touch, he removed from the land. Let's continue in verse 8. Because there's more testimony about what Josiah is doing in the process of of pursuing the Lord as supremely valuable by removing impurity from the land. He brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah. These are the legitimate priests. So their priests now are scattered. You say, well, why are they scattered? If you expel the priests from the proper priesthood and institute priests of your own making to worship Baal then the legitimate priests have no mechanism by which they can earn a living. They were supposed to live from the temple and the sacrifices. So the priests have literally scattered throughout the land doing the best they can to just make a living somewhere. He brought the priests out of the cities of Judah. He defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. He broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city which were on the left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. He removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech the chamberlain, 
who was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire, and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kedron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtaroth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. The next testimony of this passage is that we have to get rid of the easy opportunity to do evil. So yeah, we start by cleansing out the evil that is in life that we see, but then cut off the opportunity to do evil that is further out and around us. And notice to begin with that Josiah began an extensive cleaning. And uh, the passage kind of fell into these components. I don't normally do word plays, but you're going to see one with extensive, intensive, and expensive. Okay, not too many word plays, but sometimes they're very memorable. Extensive cleaning means we reach way out there. Where did Josiah clean? Not just the temple. That was start immediately on whatever God brings to your attention that needs purified from life. But then where did he go after that? To all the cities. As far as Josiah's kingly reach would extend to, he went ahead and extended it and said, let's destroy all the idolatry that is out there as far as I can possibly control, bringing the priests into the proper relationship again. So an extensive cleansing of Judah, bringing the priests out of the cities, defiling the high places in the entire land. He's breaking down the, the previous sites of worship so that at very least it would be incredibly inconvenient for the people to go back and do this. So what's his territory? Josiah is reduced. When the kingdom of Israel and Judah split, Judah had the original territory given to the two uh, tribes, Judah, and then Simeon was interspersed among Judah, and then Benjamin as well. But by this time, with the complete fall of the northern kingdom, Israel, that which is in blue on our map here is lost. The Syrians had attacked it for years. Now the Assyrians have completely deported the northern kingdom. So you're like, oh, well, isn't the the red portion on the map still? No, Judah has lost a good chunk of its own territory as well. But I outlined here for us the approximate range of uh, Josiah's control and power. It was the hill country of Ephraim all the way down through Judah, kind of this spine and hill country of which Jerusalem itself even was a part But he did actively reach out to the whole land. Next, he assaulted the deep state. He destroyed the sites of worship at home. And it is important to pay attention to some of the details. Where were a lot of these altars? And we start our reading and we see the sons of Hinnom and things like that. But no, no, go all the way back down to verse 8 near the end. He broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. So there were high-ranking officials who were tightly webbed together with this false worship. Why? Because there's money in it. 
There's money in it. Lots of money in false worship. In fact, in the ancient world, they, they didn't tend to have anything even remotely resembling banks. Where would you deposit your money if you had excess? Temples. Take it to the temple of your deities, and the temples were treasure houses. There are two reasons for this, one of which is the, the people of the land didn't want to attack the temple, right? Because then your deity would be against you. And even foreign invading armies tended not to assault houses of worship or temples because they wanted the deities of the lands even that they conquered to favor them. Of course, had a very superstitious view of how gods and goddesses operated in that day. So if we have an individual who's the governor of the city, that's a political office, but he's also setting up sites of worship right there outside his house. He's trying to capitalize on the combination of his office and pagan worship to be powerful and to make money. And it's a deep state. We've talked about this several times before. There are a number of the kings of Judah who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord themselves individually and personally, and they went out and did a lot of the kind of cleanup that we mentioned here about Josiah. But as soon as the king is dead, the whole country lurches in the opposite direction. Why? Because there are a lot of rulers, princes of Judah, People in the priesthood, whether Levitical priesthood or appointed otherwise, there are a lot of people, elitists in the land, who are profiting by paganism. And they don't want the king to touch this. So if Josiah is going to go and strike out at the governor of the city, he's messing with fire. Deep state does not like meddling with its money and power. And Josiah is essentially opening himself up to, now wait a minute, how did daddy die? Do you remember? Go back a couple weeks. How did Josiah's father die? Assassination. And Josiah is literally attacking a deep state in a way that makes him ripe for political assassination. And sometimes in the process of arguing back and forth with the impurities of our own individual life, we we can guard them and protect them with lots of noble-sounding self-justifications. Josiah could have said, you know, Lord, I'm not going to be able to do very much good for you if I'm assassinated really quickly. So why don't we just kind of take it slow, take it easy, we'll make little baby steps here and there. And instead he goes out to the very gates outside the governor of the city's house, and he destroys the high places and the seats of alternative worship. That's impressive. Extensive cleaning is vital because corruption spreads from uncleaned to cleaned region. No one wants to clean only the center of the sink and shower, right? Nobody wants to clean the shower at all. But when we do so, why do we clean the whole thing? The whole thing is dirty. And uh, down here in the uh, wonderful, pristine, dry south, we take a shower and the water sits there all day because of the humidity in the air. And with water sitting on any surface for any length of time, what do we get? Mold and lots of it. I have a good idea. Let's just scrub out the center of the mold and walk away. 
yeah, that works real well with things, right? We'll just, have you ever discovered mold in a, in a bag of bread? And then you go through this little kind of discussion in yourself. Well, the mold was only on the heel in the first four slices. And then the scientists among us say, no, it wasn't. It was through the whole thing. You just couldn't see it yet. Because if you have mold spores in an enclosed environment like that, the mold spores are on everything. So we want to clean the whole thing. And extensive cleaning is necessary in the process of purifying our lives for the Lord's sake. Because if we leave any of that mold left, it will just reinfect. Instead of rooting out only a single sin, we need to carefully examine life for all of the spiritual alliances that have accumulated, the petty, selfish practices that we've justified. The process of counseling, I've dealt with some people who are willing to give God their inappropriate things that they're watching, but not their music. And you just sit there and warn them in the process of their counseling, you can't do that. You cannot do that. You're not purifying anything, really. If that is your attitude, because the music will infect you in a way that will lead to all the rest. And sure enough, they come back weeks, days, weeks later, still struggling. The second thing that this passage shows us as a subset here is to engage in intensive cleaning. What's different about intensive cleaning from extensive? Extensive means clean the whole thing. What's intensive? Clean whatever you're cleaning thoroughly. Both are important. Most of the time we clean our houses extensively, unless we just have lots and lots of time on our hand. We need to hit everything, you know, vacuum all the the floors. But intensive, that takes a lot of time. Intensive is spring cleaning or fall cleaning or something like that where you rip everything apart and you really get down uh, to the details. Sometimes you don't even notice that the intensive is needed until you, you happen to be sitting in a chair that's not your favorite chair and you look around a little bit and you're like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't even see stuff like that from this vantage point. This needs cleaned as well. So intensive cl- cleaning roots around every remaining vestige of wrongdoing. It exposes, then destroys corruption. So look at what Josiah did in this regard. He defiled Topheth in the valley of the son of Hinnom. The Valley of the Son of Hinnom had been one of the great sites of pagan worship. They hadn't ripped down the temple. They had just made a whole avenue of very convenient sites of worship. Why? Because you you can't exactly compete on the, the Temple Mount with the temple easily. But a lot of places you go throughout the ancient world, you'd almost have like a a who's who of pagan deities. Right? You walk down the street and you're like, over here is the temple to so-and-so and and over here is the temple to so-and-so. There's a place up near the the Bania Spring in Israel that uh, you you can still go and see. They've uh, excavated some of the ruins around it, but there's an entire area of just very small, but temple, 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 because it was a territory controlled mostly by Gentiles early on that the Assyrians took from Israel early on and, and kept, and it was beyond even Galilee of the Gentiles. So it was Gentile-influenced, and there's corruption everywhere. 
And they had gone into the, the rock face of a, of a cliff, and it had actually caves dug back through it that were temples as well. But in the rock face, it carved out niche after niche after niche. And our guide des- described it to us. He said, at one point, in these dozens and dozens of niches, there were different deities. So it was like one-stop shopping. You could go to a great location here, you know, up, up near the Bania Spring. There's, it's fertile, it's lush, it's verdant. And at the same time, you can offer your votive offerings to all these different deities, one location. Well, that's what had happened in the Valley of Hinnom. And so you can, from Solomon's day on, and the passage tells us that, Solomon had not allowed his princesses married from all over the entire surrounding world, uh, to build on the Temple Mount. But he had started a process of building out from Jerusalem. And one of these valleys was absolutely filled with every conceivable deity of every surrounding nation. So what did he do? He destroyed it completely. And then he basically said, what, what can we do that will prevent this from ever being used again as a site of worship. And he defiled it. He defiled Topheth. Um, part of it we do know that says they burned human bones on some of these altars. Uh, to me, I go, well, how does that defile things since some of the deities, Chemosh among them, you offered living human sacrifices into the, the deity itself. You burned your children alive. So would a human sacrifice defile that one? I don't know. But whatever he did, it appears to have been incredibly thorough to make sure that nobody could ever rebuild in this location again. Um, perhaps it was pig's blood along with it. I don't, I don't know what it would look like. That's what I would do with the Semitic religions. I'd bring in herds of swine and slaughter them all and offer them on altars far and wide and then tear down the altars and say, anyone want to rebuild? You can't. Because all of your religions oppose pigs and, and the uh, sacrifice of, of pigs to the gods. He broke the altars of the roofs and altars in the courts. It's what we call stem to stern cleaning. And that's what Josiah engaged in. Third, Josiah engaged in expensive cleaning. Verses 13 and 14. Josiah did what no other good king had done. He went all the way back to the source. Who introduced idolatry into Israel? Solomon. Who in the world, who in his right mind is going to challenge Solomon? I mean, Solomon? You think you're, oh, so, Josiah, you think you're wiser than Solomon? I mean, you can imagine the kind of statements that would be made. I I just saw one recently this past week when one bill was being passed in the House of Representatives. A whole bunch of people from one party were just telling the others, you have to vote for it because if you don't vote for it, you're not a patriotic American. I'm like, really? Seriously? You just just throw out absurd statements like that. And And it does. It bends politicians' minds and hearts. Imagine what they would do in Josiah's day. Again, oh, you think you're wiser than Solomon? Well, no, I, I didn't. I'm not wiser. Oh, so you're not wiser than Solomon, but you're going to tear down what Solomon built up. And moreover, how entrenched is Solomon's idolatry? 
If none of the other good kings of Judah ever felt the need to tear down Solomon's idols, who do you think you are? You must be some bigoted little cultist. Some kind of narrow-minded, prejudicial individual who's got his niche religion. Look, I mean, even Jehoshaphat didn't tear down these idols. Hezekiah didn't tear down these idols. Asa didn't tear down these idols. Jotham didn't tear down these idols. Who do you think you are? And once again, it's a threat. It's a threat reflexively back on Josiah himself because if you touch these idols, you might as well just look around the church, as it were, for something that all the people love to have there and that they've had there since the church was founded and we get rid of it. No more wreaths, that's it. No more Christmas decorations. And you're like, oh, who do you think you are not to? And it's deeper than that because it's become part and parcel of the entire national consciousness of Judah. And Josiah says, it's pagan. It has to go. So I call this expensive cleaning because it is going to lead to Again, additional death threats against himself. It is going to lead to a loss, as it were, of market share in the eyes of the people. Everyone is going to hate you except for the very, very few handful of true believers in Yahweh who are left. It's going to cost you something, Josiah. If you do this, don't do it. This is a bad move. And you're not very old, Josiah, to start this program. Why don't you get a few more years under your belt? Why don't you demonstrate that you, you know, you are a somebody. Gain the people's confidence a little more. And Josiah says, no, we do it now. We destroy it completely. We've all had the experience of dusting rapidly and fairly uh, casually. I assigned one of my children, this goes back a number of years, fortunately, but I assigned one of my children to dust a room, and he, uh, said child was not interested in dusting the room, so the, the uh, dust flew. You know, the, the rag went, whoosh, you know, he was, the rag turned into a whip, and they were whipping dust off of things, and of course, what does that cause? More dust. You, you couldn't, you, you'd walk in the room with the windows open, you know, and the beautiful sunlight streaming, you're like, <laughs> These clouds of dust in the air, and it just resettled again. Now, when we do this kind of extensive, intensive, and expensive cleansing of our houses, we, we might do our dusting with a wet rag or with uh, some kind of a dusting spray, and then we put an air purifier in the room to boot to suck all the rest of the dust into a carbon filter so that we get it out Does it cost something? Well, yeah, in the case of cleansing our houses, it costs us in time and energy and effort, and it costs us the the, the value of that time in doing everything else that we could have done with that time as well. Oh, I could have gone fishing. Instead, I'm... Ladies probably didn't think that at all. That's what the guys are thinking when we get assigned dusting, right? I could have done something else. I could have... So it is costly, yes, to clean, clean things up. 
And it is costly to cleanse our own life, but it is worth doing. Verses 15 to 20. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel descend, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah, more Asherah. They're everywhere. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who predicted these things. Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God that came from Judah and predicted these things that you've done against the altar at Bethel. And Josiah said, let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars. And he burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Here he is getting rid of all historic claims of evil. And the scripture tells us he is uh, overthrowing the past through God's word. So let's reflect back. Josiah is 300 years after this prophecy. But a man of God, unnamed, goes out of Judah shortly after Jeroboam has become king and set up two alternative sites at worship, one at Bethel and one in the far north in Dan. And this man of Judah comes while Jeroboam is at Bethel. And he cries against the altar itself. Using a little figure of speech here, he speaks to the altar instead of to the people. Oh, altar, altar, a child is going to be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. He shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. That's pretty bold in the face of the king. And the king, of course, we dealt with this several years ago, seize him! And his hand shriveled up. He couldn't even pull his arm back to himself. Oh, please entreat the Lord your God for me. So, you know, because this, this is not good. And the man of God prays and jo- Jeroboam's hand is restored. That particular man of God disobeyed the word of the Lord to him directly and pay the price for it. But I find it very interesting that the people of the area built a monument to the man of God who cried out against the altar. They didn't believe his message. They didn't repent of their sin, but they made a monument to him. Uh, Perhaps in superstition, just in case, he really was a true prophet. We'll, we'll, We'll see in the future. I mean, after all, he did say as a sign the altar is going to split and the ashes will pour out, and immediately the altar ripped apart and the ashes poured out. Ooh, he must have the power of some deity behind him. Let's build him a monument. But they went on in their sin. 300 years later, a wicked king is sitting there holding his baby boy, going, what are we going to name him? The king himself has no respect for God, God's law, God's word, God's worship. Let's name him Josiah. Yeah. And the word of the Lord comes to pass. 
because the son of that wicked king with a wicked grandfather, Manasseh, turns into a righteous man who follows the Lord and is so loyal to the Lord he wants to exterminate evil and eradicate evil and purify the land as far as he can see to to such an extent that he goes into the northern kingdom now and says, I want all the historic evil that our nation has been done. The kind of evil where we look back and say, well, you know what? I just have a bad temper because dad had a bad temper or mom had a bad temper or, well, you know, I, I know I probably shouldn't be doing this, but it's just the way I grew up. It's, it's kind of the background I lived in. And grandpa was the same way. And Josiah says, no historic claim to evil remains. And in the process of doing so, he fulfills the word of the Lord. He overthrows the past through new victories, burning the bones of the priests on those altars. Habakkuk, who's going to come much later than this time, is going to tell us the vision awaits its appointed time. It will not die. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. And this is helpful for us to remember in a season like this. Yeah, like this. Because I can't worship the Lord's Christ sent to this earth as an infant to die for my sins without also remembering, but he's supposed to rule. And where is his reign? Hang on. The vision awaits its appointed time. It won't lie. And when we're discouraged and think, well, maybe God doesn't exist, or maybe he's dead, or maybe he's too tired, or maybe he's on the far side of the universe, and therefore he's not doing anything, he's not active, hang on and continue to do what is right. Why? Because the word of the Lord will surely come to pass. And everything that we have done in the meantime to be his people, to walk with him, And on the basis of a redemption that we already possess in Jesus Christ, live like redeemed people. It glorifies him, and we will be part of a ministry of purity and grace like Josiah was, fulfilling the word of the Lord. So overthrow the past through new victories. What's the difference between a bride and girlfriends? Supposed to go back here. A lot of people uh, date a bunch of people before they find the one, right? But once you find the one that is supremely valuable, what changes? I watched a young couple as I came into church this morning, and they saw each other from opposite ends of the church where they had entered. And you could hear the music playing. As they... Went, they're engaged, okay? And so they just come up to each other. You know, wonder, but why not all the rest of the girls that you pass? There's exclusivity. And there's something that has changed so dramatically that there is a purification that takes place in life. You say, what, what kind of purification? Well, you know, back when you dated her and you dated her and you dated her, you took, you took pictures of going to artist series together and so on and so forth. And you still break those out, you know, after five years of marriage and you walk through them with your wife and you're like, yeah, boy, we had a great time together with this other girl. Oh, and then here was number two that I dated. And oh, she was such a wonderful person. And here, regale her personality for a while, right? Any ladies uncomfortable with that idea? And like, no, 
when you have found the one that is supremely valuable, you purge out the old. You throw away the old pictures. You get rid of the old trinkets, whatever, if you'd saved something from an artist series. It's worthless now in light of the one who's of supreme value. Then when we find God supremely valuable, shouldn't we actively purge our lives? Intensively, extensively, expensively, as is needed. Follow the Lord. And as part of this joyous Christmas season, one of the things that we offer to him up again as a sacrifice that is not needed unto salvation, but just because we love him, is the purity of our hearts. Father, we're thankful for the testimony that you've given us. Thank you that Josiah was so serious I mean, gutsy serious about following you, even to the peril of his own life because of what he was willing to do. And yet he served you uh, with such a a deep devotion um, that he left a testimony in Israel that he was the final great good king and one that you honored. So bless us as we follow you and worship you in this season and as we continue to walk in purity of heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.